We've known for some time that access to mental health services in Canada is lagging way behind where it needs to be. The demand is greater than the supply, and even if you're able to find mental health support, the cost can be so high that help remains inaccessible for most of us. It's a massive issue with hundreds of systemic and practical causes that seem really daunting. All any of us can do to start to chip away at the problem is to take a first step. Today, we're going to meet a psychologist from BC who has taken a very, very long first step. My name is Eric Bullman. I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is Mindful. The Tour de France this year takes 21 days and covers 3,406 kilometers in all. So imagine how difficult it would be to do two Tour de France's in just 40 days. That's what today's guest is doing as she cycles from BC to the Maritimes to raise awareness and money for kids' mental health. My name is Alex DiGiacomo. I'm a clinical psychologist. I practice in Vancouver. I work with kids and families, mostly who are dealing with anxiety, trauma, behavioral stuff. And I'm currently in right outside Thunder Bay, Ontario, and I cycled here all the way from Vancouver, which is wild to me. <laughs> that is wild to me as well. And this is something that you're doing. You are undertaking a journey across Canada this summer. Uh, and I believe, I believe you're around the halfway point. I think you believe you're around the halfway point as we speak right now. I saw that you just passed through Kenora uh, last uh, time you posted on your Instagram. So uh, Thunder Bay is quite a distance from there, I think. Eh? Well, it certainly felt like quite a distance there. Yeah. <laughs> and you're doing it between like 100 and 200 kilometers a day. And you're somebody who really wasn't a cyclist before you started this journey. That to me, I think is one of the fascinating things where you decided, I am not a cyclist. I haven't done this on the regular, but I can just get on a bike and go all the way across Canada. What made you think that that was something because I think you know I'm thinking for myself I don't think I could cycle 100 kilometers in a summer let alone a day so uh what made you decide this was the way to raise awareness for uh, mental health issues especially for children and I would have been with you on that Eric like honestly last summer cycling 100 kilometers would have seemed completely just not attainable so why did I decide to do this I there are so many answers to that question so Big picture, I think big picture, the reason is I really, one of my personal values is I think we do not have to have all of the answers to a complicated problem before we start moving in the direction of a solution. And for me, that um, applies in the context of accessible care for kids. We don't have to have all the answers to that before we start trying to chip away at it. And personally, like I don't have to be an expert cyclist before I try doing this. The specific reason for the cycle across Canada, I was inspired by my best friend's dad who cycled across the country when his wife passed away from, from breast cancer. So he's the one that gave me that specific idea of cycling. He did it in 1993 and we had a conversation it's funny, I wrote it down in my journal just after Christmas of 2022. And then there was a couple months where I always wanted to do it. It was one of those things where as soon as I heard him say it, 
I knew I wanted to do it. I was personally sort of in need of a reset in my life. And this issue of accessibility had always been there in the background. I always knew like, I have to do something about this because it's like this elephant in the room, right? Like as psychologists, we love fixing things. You know, I love solving problems and I could very easily just ignore the fact that the vast majority of kids are not able to access the care that I can provide. So, so it'd be easy to just focus on the ones that I can see, but that just feels, it feels wrong, right? It doesn't feel very satisfying. Right. So those were some of the, those were some of the thoughts in the background. And I think for, for me, it was important to do something that was going to be very challenging because I think a lot of life comes comes down to how we respond to uncertainty, right? And unfortunately, there are so many kids and parents in this country right now who are dealing with a lot of uncertainty because they can't access care and they feel alone. And so they feel like the task before them is insurmountable. So I wanted as a metaphor, right? Like as some kind of metaphor analogy, I wanted to do something that felt <laughs> insurmountable. And gosh, it sounds like a crazy idea. I'll just be honest. And my friends and family truly thought that I had lost it. But I have to say, halfway through, it has exceeded my expectations, honestly. And so you're quite confident then that the second half uh, will go quite well as well and that uh, you're going to be able to do this. Where is the end point? What's the finale uh, that you're aiming for? What I have in my route is St. John, New Brunswick. But as I've been writing, I've been realizing, you know, that's not actually the end. So I'm going to do my very best to get to Halifax because then you can dip, dip your tire, you know, on the other side, coast to coast, really. Oh. But I'm going to have to speed up because I do have to be back at work, right? In a certain day. So <laughs> right now it's New Brunswick, but we're going to see if I can get to Halifax. And when you say am I confident, no, I'm not confident <laughs> that I can <laughs> Absolutely not. Like, I believe I can. But the whole point here is like, I am not confident that I will make it through the next day. I don't know actually how it's been possible. I think it's just practice and you can you can achieve more than you think. I think those are the two probably key things, because certainly three and a half months ago, the longest ride I'd been on was um, 65K and I didn't actually own own a bike at that time. And so did you purchase a bike for this purpose? Yes. Uh, and was it, you know, super souped up like a tough bike that's going to be able to last through all of this is it one of those speed bikes that you see in the tour de france uh, what kind of bike did you choose <laughs> yeah it's funny so i live about two blocks from a bike shop and one day i walked right in there it's called reckless bikes in vancouver i walked in and i said to the owner like i'm gonna bike across canada this summer i need a bike he said i'm not a cyclist he's like okay we'll get you a bike so it was so funny because he had no problem with it and that was i think if he had a different reaction i might have wavered more but so he hooked me up with gosh i don't even know i think it's a hybrid it's more on the it's a a road bike with slightly wider tires. I don't, I'm not even a bike expert. I have no idea. It's a road bike with like slightly wider tires. And what else does it have on it? It has a radar for cars and trucks. So I can see when they come. That's all I know about my bike. <laughs> That's kind of perfect, right? This idea that you're just uh, taking the leap and hopping on the, the bike that you got and, and going in your practice, you've worked with children and kids. Yeah. How did 
obviously this is something we've all been dealing with for a long time, this issue of access and this issue that there's simply more demand than supply, especially of late, it's gotten worse. So how have you been dealing with that up until now? I mean, is it just something that you kind of see as a periphery on the periphery of the practice that you're doing? Or is there something a little more tangible that you've seen specifically that brought that issue home for you? I think it's probably that it's just been there for so long, right? Like I just remember at the beginning of grad school when, you know, you work in the student clinics for like $20 an hour or whatever, you the demand there was so high that waitlist was like a year. And now almost 12 years later, um, you know, the waitlist at the private practice I work at is over a year. And then I remember seeing one kid come into my office and she said, I've been on your waitlist for two years. And that was, it's just, I think it's easy for us to normalize it and think, oh yeah, like it's just hard to get in. But when you really think about it, it's, that's not, it's just not okay, right? Like it's really not okay. Cause especially with kids, we know that time is of the essence. Of course it is with adults too, but with kids, there's a developmental trajectory that we have to keep in mind, right? So having anxiety that interferes with your functioning at age five, if you don't get care until age eight, all of those developmental milestones between five and eight are affected as well. So there's a compound effect. So yeah, having knowledge about this like super long wait list. And then even when kids get in, it's so expensive. So I work in private practice and it's just not, it's not, not doable for most families. And yeah, so there wasn't one thing, I, I guess, but it's just the fact that th this problem has been there for a very long time. It seems only to be getting worse. And I guess it just seems unfortunate because we do have treatments that really work. And so one of the themes when parents come in is they often feel like there's nothing that they can do for their kids or there's nothing that can be done. And often there really is a lot that can be done. So it seems so unfortunate to be, to have these treatments that, that, you know, often really work and for kids not to be able to access them. I can see what you're saying with kids, right? If there's a two year wait list to get somewhere and you finally do get in, well, now you need a different treatment than you did exactly. when you first put yourself on that wait list and that kind of thing, right? And so you've chosen several charities to raise funds for as well that are dedicated to bringing uh, mental health support to children. Can you talk to me a little bit about some of those charities? Yeah, so that was something I just, I wanted all of Canada to be represented. So I decided, yeah, to choose one from each province. And I you know, it's actually hard to choose them because there aren't like in, in Saskatchewan, for example, it was hard. It was hard to find one. So that's that was interesting, too, is like there are these gems, but you really have to search for them. So one of them is is actually Jack.org. This was a sort of an exception because they don't provide direct care to kids and families. But I think that the resourcing that they do is actually very innovative and very creative. So they equip young people to go to schools and to sort of do some preventative education and coaching to other young people. And we know that that is helpful for, you know, prevention and kind of normalizing of mental health. So, and they've, they stand out to me because they've they're very strategic. They've scaled really well. They've done this in a very creative way. And so I really wanted to include them. And then there's, yeah, there's Variety BC, Variety Manitoba, Casamental. There's all, yeah, in, in each province, there's there's a great charity that is that sees this gap and, and is trying to, to meet the needs in a really cool way. 
We will put links to each of those charities in the show notes of this podcast. So anyone listening now can go there and read all about the good work that's being done in your province and uh, with all of the charities that Dr. Giacomo is uh, riding for. And you've raised quite a lot of money so far. I think the last I saw was over $10,000. What's the end goal? How much do you want to raise by the time this is all over? It's funny. My goal was $10,000 and then I hit it about just under halfway. So right now it's actually at 14,200 and I met. So one of the other kind of unintended consequences of this whole thing is that I've met some amazing people, really truly, truly incredible strangers. And so one of the strangers that I met actually offered me her, her house, her lake house to stay in in Kenora. And I got to talking with her and she said, what are you doing? Like, you have to raise it to 50. She actually said you should raise it to 100. I mean, I didn't have the confidence to do that, but I raised, I did raise it to 50. So we're trying to raise $50,000. That's terrific. And is, is that where you've been staying along the route? Are you staying with strangers? Do you just meet people in a town when you uh, arrive there and say, hey, hey, I need a place for the night? Or are you uh, planning this a little more strategically? Do you book motels in advance? It looks like you're talking to me from a motel right now i can't tell yeah. for sure but i am in a motel so so i wasn't completely reckless when planning this so i do have a route and i have called it in advance for motels and sometimes that's not possible so i have just come out of a very remote stretch where there really was there were like a couple cabins that were all sold out but then they they made an exception so mostly i've been staying in motels some of them have heard about the initiative and have been very gracious and given it to me for free which is like so appreciated And then occasionally I've met some strangers who've offered their place and stayed there, but mostly hotels, mostly motels. And do you have a team going along with you? I see a few bags on the bed behind you there. It looks like a lot to carry on a bicycle. Uh, Is there someone following you in a car for safety purposes and that kind of thing? Yeah, so there's a support car and it meets me sort of every 40 kilometers or so. It's funny, initially on day two, so day two was... Uh, Agassiz to Merritt, which if you're familiar with BC goes along the Coquihalla Highway, you're not. But that was the day where I said to the supporter, I said, you guys have to be beside me for a chunk of this because this is a very dangerous stretch of highway. Like there's no shoulder at all. On one side, there's a cliff. On the other side, there's transport trucks just barreling by. So I wanted them to be right beside me. But then we got there and there's construction. So they couldn't because there's only one lane and obviously you can't take up the lane. So I had to do that by myself, which was a nightmare. But basically, they I thought they thought that they'd be beside me a lot, but it turns out that's actually kind of dangerous because, like, cars aren't paying attention. And even though it's legal to have a follow car if there are two lanes, it's just it's not a good idea. So we've we've kind of refined the technique, and so now we meet up, you know, a few times in the in the riding day, and then they're there at the end of the night. That sounds absolutely terrifying to me, cycling along a a road with no shoulder with a cliff on the one side and traffic on the other. Is that the scariest thing that's happened so far in the journey? So to answer your question, yes, it was. And the interesting thing about it, it was right on day two, which is right when I started. And so I hadn't really had time to process what I was doing, because to be honest with you, the preparation for this trip was the hardest part and mostly about calming everyone else down around me because everyone else was really scared. And so I didn't really have a chance to be scared, but then I got very, very scared. 
on that day. So it was, it was terrifying because it was only the second day on the road. And it like, so luckily I actually saw these two cyclists on that highway. I don't know why or how they were there, but I just ran up to them and basically begged them to cycle with me. And they did. So I think honestly, I think if it, if it weren't for having that chance meeting with these two people with all these bags, they were going to, to Calgary. I don't know that it would have made it past day two, to be honest with you. Cause it was, it was the worst day. Yeah. That's just the heights alone freaks yeah. me out. And just thinking about that freaks me out. So uh, yeah. yeah, well, I'm glad you made it past that. I'm glad Thank that you. you're here. What day are you on now? So I'm counting riding days. So I had this goal. I wanted to do it in 40 days of riding and I am taking rest days. So today's a rest day, but I'm on day 23 of riding. So I'm about four days behind my goal. Like I'm going to have, basically I'm going to have to speed up if I want to hit the 40 days. If I don't, it's, it's not the end of the world. It was a loose goal, but yeah. So mostly on track. And what does speeding up mean? Does that mean taking fewer rest days or does that mean just biking harder over the course of the day and getting further? Yeah. So not taking fewer rest days because I'm not counting those in the, like I want to do 40 days of riding. So, so yeah, to speed up basically means to cover more mileage in a day. It's very, like, it's just, it's very surprising to me that I was, I was able to do 200 in one day, which is kind of like ridiculous, right? Like what? how who does that but it was a day with tailwinds in the prairies which by the way i'd never been to the prairies before and i absolutely fell in love with saskatchewan it's just absolutely stunning but when there's a tailwind you can do anything is what i learned that is amazing that sounds incredible 200 kilometers in a day saskatchewan is beautiful right all the fields with the different colors and all that kind of thing but i will say whenever i've driven through the prairies Saskatchewan in particular and large stretches of Manitoba, I find it difficult to stay awake driving the car because it's so straight and there's very little to, uh, you know, as far as landmarks go to pay attention to along the side of the road, like, oh, there's a beautiful blue field and a beautiful yellow mustard field or whatever. But do you find the same thing on the bike? Does it get monotonous or is it just so beautiful all the time that you're totally happy and wide awake paying attention to all of it? I had a wildly different experience each of the four days I was there. So one of them, I, I'm, there's actually a video of me. I didn't post it, but I'm pretty much crying, basically saying exactly what you said. Like, I feel like I'm on a treadmill and nothing ever moves. Like the, you know, the scenery is beautiful, but it's static. Like it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't really change. So there was one day that was, was rough. Although even by the end of that day, I seem to come out of that slump somehow. But the other ones, gosh, I don't know. There was something about the contrast in scenery from the mountains to the prairies that it really was a great context for like my own kind of processing and reflecting and contemplating. So I'm not a naturally very contemplative person, but I see the value in it. And so it's like it almost took that environment to force me to to do some reflecting and I, to be honest I found it pretty magical there was almost like a trance like state to it and I think that the that the environment contributed to that so mostly you know mostly my memories from there are I was pleasantly surprised 
and I felt like the the prayers were just so alive. I can't imagine not being forced into a contemplative state given the long days of cycling. And I mean, it strikes me that you spend an awful lot of time alone with your own mind in that circumstance. I also, I, I once ran a half marathon. So, wow. And no, no, not wow. It was terrible. <laughs> I, I absolutely hated every minute of it. And all the, these people who are runners, right? Like distance runners and the people who love that stuff were telling me, you know, oh, you're going to get out there and like, you're going to get a few kilometers in and you're going to get this runner's high and it's going to feel amazing. Like you're running on air and then you're, and I ran a full half marathon without once experiencing that. Anyway, <laughs> every step of it sucked. I have sworn off running for the rest of my life after I completed. I got the little badge thing and I said, that's enough. No more. Right. But it sounds like you're describing this sort of uh, runner's high in a way when you're gliding through the prairies and appre appreciating everything around you. Eric, I have to say th there's no other way I could. There were a couple days in particular there they that were just euphoric. And I thought like, man, what is happening to me? And like, I don't know how to explain it. I really don't. But yeah, maybe cyclists high, um, all the fresh air. I don't know because, and there's no other way that I would have been able to do 200 kilometers and wasn't even going slow like my average speed was 27 kilometers an hour so it's just baffling it's really like and I I think that relates to just one of the big picture lessons I've taken away from this so like in my practice obviously I treat a lot of anxiety so I'm all about facing fears as a way to treat anxiety and usually the benefit of that is like okay you know your your functioning is impaired you're not able to do quote unquote, regular things because of your anxiety. So let's face those fears so that you can function normally. What I'm not as familiar with is this idea that there's like freedom on the other side of fear. So not only can it get back, get you to baseline, but it's like a portal to joy really. So for me personally, it's been quite the experience. And because I've been, I'm scared, like I'm very scared of the trucks and the cars and the, oh my goodness, the crosswinds, geez, like that's the worst. But on the other side of that, it's, I would say it's been euphoric. Honestly, that's really cool. Do you think it's going to change the way you approach your practice when you do finally go back? Yes. You know, because it's funny when you can say, and I can't say this just yet, but if you can say that you've propelled yourself across the country with your legs, like it really emboldens you. It really does. You know, it makes you feel kind of dangerous. So <laughs> I am definitely going to change my practice. I don't know how, but I am going to change it in a way, hopefully, that will make it more accessible. Yeah, it, it turns out that like my initial inclination of you don't have to wait till you have all the answers to move in the direction of a solution is true. And you can count on a snowball effect. You can count on momentum building and you can count on confidence uh, increasing. So, yes, I, my practice will change. I don't know how, but it will change. Well, I think that's kind of the the best advice. And, and maybe I think the thing... I hope people take out of this whole thing is just take that first step, right? That there's huge problems with massive systemic issues and all kinds of difficulties to address. But until everyone takes that first little step, or in your case, massive 6,000 kilometer step, then, you know, it's not going to get changed. So that's a great way to, to approach it. And I, was that the approach right from the beginning or is that something that you sort of come to over the course of the journey? You know, when you have some some kind of loose conviction 
and you decide to trust it and then it materializes. That's kind of what it was. Like we, I mean, part of this, we know from decades of psychological research, like we know that taking an action step has a way of galvanizing hope. And it's it's all about uncertainty. It's all about how you deal with uncertainty. And if I could make a generalization, I don't know if this is fair, but it it feels kind of like sometimes as psychologists, we tend towards the more like risk averse side. And I include myself in that too. So you, what I'm used to is thinking a lot about things before I do them. And so I have a value of taking a step in uncertainty. I don't know that I've really practiced that. So this is the first major time that I've done that. And it really, like, it really does have a way of, of galvanizing hope and building momentum. So I think, yeah, I think you're, you're right when you say that, like, it's more valuable than I thought to, to take a step before you have all the answers. And so tell me a little bit about your practice uh, as it stands now. You, you're you helping children. You're dealing primarily, you said, with anxiety and that sort of thing uh, in a private practice. How many children are you able to see in a given you know week or month? I think that's something a lot of people want to know when we talk about access. How many children are being left out and how long these wait lists are really depends on the capacity of individual psychologists, mental health professionals, psychotherapists to uh, to accommodate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm associate. I'm an associate in a private practice. I work there two days a week. Um, I recently finished a postdoctoral fellowship at BC Children's Hospital. So I um, yeah. So I get actually even while I was doing that, I was two days. So in two days, I do see a lot of kids. I try to just pack them in, honestly. Um, I see uh, probably about eight a day, uh, so 16 a week, but that's not a lot, you know, like that's, and then I, I usually, I don't know, probably the average would be 12 to 15 sessions for each one. So right. you can do the math on that, but there's not a lot of availability. So um yeah, like I think probably part of the answer to the accessibility problem is figuring out a different model because the one-to-one, like it just doesn't leave a lot of room for new cases. And then, but then even if it does, there's the financial part of it. So. Right. Right. And that becomes a big thing as well. And, you know, one of the things we advocate for a lot is uh, you know, health plans and insurance yeah. companies covering a certain amount of that, but then Again, the demand is still greater than the supply, even if all private insurance covered that, even if all workplace insurance did. One of the pillars that you're cycling for here that you've laid out is psychoeducation. First of all, explain what psychoeducation means and what you're hoping people learn about it. Well, you've been you very carefully read my initiative. I really appreciate that, Eric. So, so psychoeducation is is actually really important. It's basically knowledge about psychology, knowledge about mental health uh, symptoms, and how, like for example, how anxiety um, is impacted by the body and the brain, and kind of how it works. And the reason it's especially important when it comes to uh, treating mental health problems is because the knowledge itself actually matters. So what we know is simply having access to good psychoeducation can in and of itself make people feel better. So even before you've done any actual treatment. So that's why that, and it's interesting, like I'm new to the whole social media world, but 
I think that it lends that that context lends itself very well to psychoeducation because it's not therapy, right? Obviously, you can't do therapy on on social media, but you can provide knowledge, and that is a psychoeducation is basically a key ingredient in many of the therapies that we know work. So, like one example is, you know what do you do with fear? Like facing, when you avoid things, they get bigger. When you face things, they get smaller. So little bits of that. And so I'm hoping that that's like a, an easy kind of free way to help people feel less alone while they're waiting. So I've kind of tagged it, hashtag learn while you wait. And I haven't shared actually as much psychoeducation as I've wanted because it's been so busy, but I have like 20 videos saved up that I'll hopefully start sharing in the next few days. So you have uh, pre-recorded a bunch of videos that you can then upload along your journey. I was wondering if you were taking a stop at every time that you stopped uh, for the evening that you were posting to Instagram, you know, live, but it much easier if you record some things ahead of time, I imagine. I've recorded ahead of time, but I do, I am recording on the bike a lot because I have a phone stand, which just happened to work out so well. So I can just talk and because it's, it's so interesting how many relevant analogies come up when you are on the road. Like it's wild, the metaphors to, for mental health and cycling. Like for example, the other day, there was um, one day where I was facing this crazy headwind. I was barely moving. And then the next day I had a tailwind and I was just coasting, you know, at 38 kilometers an hour. And like the point there, it's just so obvious, right? Like I was not any fitter the second day. I didn't have any additional mental fortitude the second day. The only thing that was different was the winds blowing in a different direction. So that for me was a metaphor of like, okay, not all of this is up to us. So a lot of the times when we're experiencing these mental health problems and symptoms. It has a lot to do with our environment and our circumstance. And we all need a little bit of help, but some of us don't ever get any help. Like some of us never get to experience what it's like to have a tailwind. So that's, I guess it's not technically psychoeducation, but a little bit it is because if somebody is hearing that and they've just been struggling chronically for decades because they're, you know, have issues with homelessness or, or whatever, they, they can at least know, like it's, it's not their fault. Like there's a lot of this that is is about our environment. It's an excellent metaphor. Uh, whether it counts as psychoeducation or not, I think that uh, it's something that people can really identify with. And uh, and watching you go through it, it can be nothing if not helpful, I imagine. So you're a neophyte when it comes to cycling and to social media. You're combining the two things. You're chronicling this whole journey on Instagram. How have you found that experience uh, starting this Instagram account and, and going through this journey with the people who are following you, commenting, responding to, to the content that you're putting out there? Yeah, I'd, I would say that's been tougher than the cycling not 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 more difficult but just it feels much more vulnerable like as a psychologist on social media it's just not ever something that I thought I would be doing like I never thought I would be putting myself out there online and it's it's yeah it feels very vulnerable and I'm 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 constantly thinking about like, okay, is what I'm putting out there like actually going to be helpful to anybody like is it possible that it's going to be hard so there's just a lot of thought that goes goes into it and takes a lot of time. But um, I would say overall, it's been worth it. And I think that psychologists should be online because there are so many people saying things online that are actually harmful, especially when it comes to mental health. So I think it's important to have, you know, 
some kind of like qualified voices out there combating some of the, like the other day on TikTok, I saw someone say, um, ADHD is a trauma response. And so I thought like, gosh, we got to be on here because that's not true. Obviously that's not true. So there's got to be someone uh, countering it. Yeah, I think you're right. There, There is a pile of noise in the social media space and especially around mental health, an awful lot of terrible advice and a lot of things, like you said, that just aren't true. And yes, the more qualified people we have in those spaces who can either, you know, uh, debunk some of the untrue things or just put out some quality content that people can, you know, gravitate toward. And Maybe uh, in the end, that's one of the lasting legacies of what you're doing. You're going to have this page with a lot of uh, really great content and a lot of really great metaphors from cycling across Canada. And over the course of 6,000 kilometers, you're going to have a lot of, uh, you know, thoughts along the way and uh, sharing them from the road is a great way to do that. Well, thank you. So you've got, uh, you're just past halfway. I've looked it up since we started talking. You are in fact past the halfway mark, at least on the Trans-Canada. I don't know where the Trans-Canada actually ends, but uh, you are past the halfway mark of Canada. Does that include my detour to Toronto? Please tell me it does. I don't know. That I would have to look up a little more carefully on MapQuest. I shouldn't say MapQuest. I don't think people use that anymore. That shows how old I am and how (laughs) familiar with all this technology I am as well. Uh, But Google Maps might be able to tell me a little better. But I don't want to take time away from the interview to go do that. Uh, (laughs) We'll put it in the show notes. We'll let people know whether Thunder Bay is... Uh, halfway with a detour to Toronto. So are you, do you have anything special planned for Toronto? What, uh, what's prompted that detour? So it's my hometown And you know, when I was first planning this, I think we've discussed how it was, this whole thing was not meticulously planned, right? Like it was, but it, it, it came all came together at the last minute. So I just thought, okay, I'm going to beeline it, right? I'm going to take the shortest, like the quickest route. But then I realized, oh, it's actually a big deal. Like I actually made it, you know, I I actually got myself here. And so then I thought, oh, maybe I should go to my hometown because I think I am planning a little event. So that it'll be a public um, event in a park on September 2nd in Toronto. And I'm hoping that I'll find some, some folks to ride into the park with me, maybe from Collingwood. So yeah, we'll have, and, and now that I have $40,000 more to raise. I'm going to need all of the extra uh, voices that I can get. Well, terrific. Uh, we will share the story when you reach Toronto. And uh, please let us know how that goes. And in the show notes here, we'll help you as best we can reach that $50,000 goal by putting all the charities that you're supporting in the show notes and your Instagram as well for people who are not yet following along. Uh, it's very much worth a follow and uh, we can track your progress as you go. It's been terrific. That's very sweet of you to say. I appreciate it. And I should also say there is one donation link. It's charitable impact. And then at the end of the ride, the funds get split across all the charities. So um, you could, of course, read about all the char- amazing charities, but the donation link is is one kind of link and then it all gets split. All right. Oh, so people in individual provinces aren't donating to the organization in exactly. their province. They're donating to the whole cause and then it exactly. will be- Okay. Because there's no other way to tally it up so that I had to find an organization that could, where you could kind of hold the money 
And then at the end, you can split it across all of the charities that you want to, that you want for it to go to. Terrific. And one last question before I let you go, the, uh, overall goal of this what do you hope people take away from this people who are following along with it people who are just hearing about it now uh, people who are inclined to support it what do you hope that people take away from this uh, more than anything else I think if I had to sum it up um, briefly I want people to know that kids matter and parents really matter uh, like they're kind of they're worth fighting for that the end that there are tons of kids and parents across this country who are feeling very very alone not because of their mental health struggles but because they're alone in their mental health struggles so it's not even the symptoms themselves that are the primary problem the primary problem is that they're not able to access care so i want people to know that i want the people suffering to know that they're not alone and i want there to be some kind of momentum building to you know in the direction of a of a solution excellent well i hope that we uh, are moving toward that uh, solution in one way or the other and advocating for it is the first step and you have taken an enormous first step in that uh pursuit so very nice well done uh congratulations on being past halfway and uh, we'll follow the rest of your journey with great interest Thank you so much, Eric. I'm so glad you got in touch. Go to the show notes of today's episode for a link to donate to Dr. DiGiacomo's cause and for links to follow her journey on Instagram. The donation link contains further links for the charities she's supporting, and it's incomplete at the moment because as she enters each new province, a new charity gets added to the list. Thanks to Dr. DiGiacomo for taking the time on her rest day to speak with me and to you at home for listening, streaming, or downloading today's episode. Mindful is written, hosted, and published by me, Eric Bullman. Our producer is Jamie Montgomery, and our theme song is Avenues by David Taylor.